Hey everybody, I'm Mike Yeager, and I want to thank you for checking us out. Welcome to Vessel. We're so excited to get things rolling here in Meadows Place. It has been a blast so far. If you're in the Meadows or nearby in Southwest Houston or Fort Bend County, Stafford, we would love to meet you. Or if you know anyone in the area searching for a Christian community that is Jesus-centered, justice-minded, and a safe and inclusive place for all people. We are gathering regularly through the fall during this initial planting season and invite you to join us on this shared journey of healing and hope. Here's the message from this weekend, and we pray it is a blessing to you. So to begin, I have an activity. Don't look so excited. I'd like for everyone in a moment to turn uh, and find a couple neighbors, three or four, to a group. And what you're going to do may sound deceptively simple. Uh, finish this sentence. Jesus is... Go from there. What are the particular character qualities we hear, we observe or assign? What does he sound like, look like? What is it like to be in his company? Who exactly is this person to who our devotion is directed and how did we come to those conclusions? There are no wrong answers. So we'll give you a minute, go. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, because it, it, it may be harder than you initially think, but what, uh, what kind of answers did, did we come up with? We can just like popcorn style, shout them out. Yeah. Graceful? Absolutely. Yes. Merciful? Shout, shout them out loud. I, I need to hear you. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. I love that. Yes, absolutely. Mara? Joyful. Joyful. Caesar holding down the joy table back there. He is Lord. And what does Jesus himself say? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. These are the seven I am statements found in John's gospel. And those of you who have been with us from the jump know that we're walking through our own identity statement of sorts. Who is this community, Vessel Church? And the honest truth is, one, we still don't really know yet. And two, I'm not sure that we ever will because we're always going to be in the process of changing transformation. It's unavoidable. But as a point of departure, we could do worse than, than this, where we've begun. That we say that we are embodied stories, molded and mended by Jesus, voyaging together, bearing love to every horizon. And so last time together, we reflected on our lives as story and that these individual and these communal narratives, whether we realize it or not, are a part of the, 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 the meta-narrative, the grand story that God is telling from creation, from creation, a story of exile and return, rescue, healing, shalom. Remember the prodigal. It's a, it's a story about God calling us home, enacted in and through the love by which our Savior laid down his life, that the death and darkness would be dismantled and the kingdom of grace and peace established right here. And next time we'll consider uh, the, that this is a path that we're not made to, to, to walk alone, voyaging together and following 
uh, the ways that God shapes a community to, to share the goodness of God's love and provision far outside the whatever walls and boundaries it may draw for itself. But, but as we are a, a newly forming faith community who declare the lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives and our homes and our heartaches and our hopes and over the whole world from generation to generation, it probably behooves us to spend a bit of time reintroducing this Nazarene carpenter who upended an empire without so much as a hint of violence or hatred, and to begin to discard whatever versions of our Redeemer, Jesus the Anointed, that have been made in the image of our own broken humanity. Like, easy, right? Okay. So that's what we're going to do today. So something you may not know about me is that my, my background, my, my first degree path, uh, the vocation to which I aspired was the theater. And regrettably, my, my first theatrical credit is one I actually wish, I very much wish I could take back. Um, does the phrase hell house mean anything to anyone here, right? Like maybe like faint recognition. Um, so for a bit of context, over the past 30 years and change, uh, certain churches, mostly in the South, mostly fundamentalist evangelical communities would put on a play of sorts. And it would happen around this time of the year because these were intended to function as a, a haunted house alternative to the, the Halloween festivities happening elsewhere, what they would condemn as, as pagan or de demonic. And let me just say, as, as your pastor, I, I am not worried in the slightest for your eternal soul or that of your children should you decide to dress up as weird Barbie or a, a ninja or a minion or a ghoul of any kind, nor should you be. So we're just gonna put that out there. Uh, but anyway, I, I was cast in the production, and, and, and it wasn't literally called Hell House. I think they rightly assumed that would be a deterrent for many. No, it, it, was, it was called Hallowed House. Much kinder, softer, much uh, less overt for the bait and switch, right? And it, and it wasn't performed on a traditional proscenium stage, actors here, audience seated there. It was hosted in a kind of a warehouse with a series of rooms adorned as the various sets, and so both the cast and the audience would travel together from room to room, and there were multiple casts, so they could just uh, continue to cycle through audiences all throughout the evening. You following right? So I, I, can't, I still can't recall my character's name. I, I texted my friend, um, but, but I played the best friend of the main character of the, the play named Leisha, and Leisha had started huffing Freon as a means of coping with her parents' divorce. And in one of the first scenes, her younger sister takes part, uh, but tragically uh, overdoses and, and dies. And, and we're just getting started. This gets crazy. Uh, so our characters are then at a party, and Leisha is continuing to cope destructively, now with this added layer of guilt. And we later find that offstage, uh, she has been sexually assaulted by another character in the play, this kind of bully character, this bully figure. And back at school, Leisha is comforted by, by a classmate who had been portrayed to that point as, as an object of ridicule, as, as a devote, devout uh, Christian outcast. Uh, and Leisha commits her life to Christ in that moment. And in the very next scene, my character confronts the bully in the hallway, who then produces a gun from his locker, and while intending to shoot me, misses and hits Leisha, uh, mortally wounding her. 
I am next seen watching a video montage of the friend I loved uh, while drinking straight from a bottle of Jack Daniels and, and taking a large number of pills leading to my own death. There are three rooms left at this point in the, in the play. The first one the audience enters is, uh, is depicted as heaven in its most basic recognizable form. It's stark white and clouds and in a golden gate and there seated on the throne is a man unmistakably dressed as Jesus. And, and Lisha and I, our hands bound, we approach the throne and Lisha accepts the offer of embrace and she is lovingly led through the, through the veil into the great hereafter or backstage to rest. You know. My character recoils at the offer of embrace and is dismissed to the, ne the next room where the audience follows into a vision of hell. It's a dark hallway, it's like stage fog and strobe lights and like German techno metal and like piped in screams playing at 11. And there at the end of the hallway, there was me, a 14 year old child thrashing on the ground in chains. The final room was the room that none of the actors were ever to enter because it would just destroy the illusion. And it was there that the now emotionally battered audience was seated and greeted by a pastor who would give them a choice. Repent of their sin and receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior there and then, or departs, choose to depart, knowingly risking a fate of eternal torment. Now let me just say as clearly as I can that as a tool for evangelism, as so-called ministry, let alone as uh, theology, let alone as live theater, this is spiritual malpractice. This is spiritual abuse, manipulative, offensive, appalling, anti-Christ. And I didn't even know what I was getting myself into. My friend just said, I'm going to audition for a play. Wanna come? It'll be fun, they said, right? But looking back on that time now with the wisdom of, of, of distance, I can see how very harmful it was to, to, to all involved, that we were used to promote a branch of theology which remains troublingly common and it's largely designed to sow division and to promote uniformity and to weaponize fear in the interest of A, producing compliance, and B, maintaining a status quo from which a carefully select few continue to be the primary beneficiaries. And you may have your own experience with communities or traditions where legalism and judgment and silencing and, and control were abundant and yet Grace and humility and justice and listening and confession and reconciliation seemed in short supply. And we have to begin to ask, are we looking at the same Jesus here? Because for many, their preferred vision of Jesus is not the suffering servants who openly flouted religious hypocrisies and, and rejected the hollow promises of, of, of power and, and influence and touched the untouchable communed with sinners, and unfailingly sought the outcast, but have adopted instead something closer to this. The conquering hero, often fair-skinned, often armed, often red, white, and blue, adjacent, 
come to do battle with the, the enemy, whomever the other happens to be in our minds, and to claim dominion on behalf of the righteous elect, namely us. And it's critical that we recognize and we call out the disheartening ways that, that such dis idolatrous, distorted projections of our Savior, whose love is for all people, have become so wedded to the, to the heresies of Christian nationalism or, or white supremacy or xenophobia or homophobia or patriarchy or any of the other culture war nonsense and fear-mongering that the actual enemy uses to divide and distract the body of Christ to further divide and distract us from unifying together across differences to address deeply embedded systemic sin and injustice, and to do so not through dehumanizing rhetoric and malice and not by utilizing scripture as a weapon, wielding as a, as a weapon, but by a genuine inbreaking of the Holy Spirit that guides us through the darkness of the world and through the darkness of our own creation and into the light of a deeper union shaped by grace and reconciliation, shaped by the cross. And it's not their problem. I think it's my problem. It's something that I have to address within myself. It reminds me of the old chestnut from uh, writer Anne Lamott. You can safely assume that you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. But I love how Jesus calls out the, the dissonance himself in the Gospel of John chapter 5 in response to the religious folk who were condemning him for healing on the Sabbath. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I'm right here. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the one to whom it points. And you can know all the facts and the, and the names and the genealogies and the restrictions, and you can quote the scripture up and down, but to what end? You know all the rules, sure. You follow all the rules, sure. But don't you see, it's absolutely meaningless because you have no love in your heart. And later on, shortly before the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, that as Jesus and his friends are observing the Passover, and he had washed the feet of his disciples, even Judas, even the feet of his betrayer, and he continued to speak, preparing them for their impending separation and the, and the terrible events that were about to unfold. And there we pick up in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, and you may recall, Jesus had, had only just a few breaths earlier declared this new commandment, the great commandments, the summation of all the law, love one another as I have loved you. Do this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. You won't be alone. I promise, I, I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you in a little while. You will no longer see me. The world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you, and they who have my commandments and keep them. 
are those who love me. We heard it earlier. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. You've heard the song that they will know we are Christians by what? Our, our love. And yet every poll taken seems to suggest that a fair majority, in our country anyway, seem to say that their impression of Christians is the polar opposite. And it goes on. Judas, not Iscariot. I find it, this is a sidebar, I find it really funny that it specifies not that one. It's like this Judas was pestering John, like make sure they know I'm the good Judas. Okay. So Judas, not Iscariot, he said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not the world? And, and Jesus answered him, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. So all who live in love will be loved and be a conduit through whom God loves others. And I've said these things to you while I'm still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. And we live in troubling times. Or to put it more simply, we live. And the times have always been troubling. And so may we not forget that we are no longer fumbling around in the dark, that we have not been abandoned, that he told us so. Whoever follows me in love will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, your compass and your heading. Be not afraid. In our daily dilemma, mine anyway, is continuing to trust that it's true. And it is true. For me, for you, for everyone, that God is here right now. And God will be with each and every one of you when you leave this place, every breath, every step. But there's no denying that the world can make it hard to see. And this is an icon for reflection designed by my friend Scott Erickson. And he wrote it with a caption that, that reads as follows. Where are you? I asked. I'm hiding out in every single person you meet. Look for me there. Earlier this week, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, put out a tweet, since deleted, that characterized the conflict raging in Israel and Gaza as, quote, a struggle between the children of light and the children of darkness, between humanity and the law of the jungle. And I don't have to tell you how dehumanizing that language is and how it, how it echoes the impulses that have led, that have been behind the worst chapters, every one of the worst chapters of the human story. We are the righteous, the just, the chosen, and they are little more than animals. So two things can be true. One, Hamas is a terrorist organization driven by hatred and with no regard 
for innocent life. And Israel operates with regard to Gaza and the West Bank functionally as an apartheid state with a long-standing oppression that has caused great suffering, plenty of injustice to go around. So Lauren and I had the great privilege of taking part in a, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land a few years ago and spent time not only walking in the footsteps of, of Jesus, but experienced incredible hospitality from Muslim friends in Nablus in the West Bank and shared an unforgettable Shabbat dinner in a Jewish home, just an up-close taste, just a taste of the staggering complexity. And I propose that one of the reasons that it's that it's really hard to watch all that is unfolding, and I do suggest that we have to look, is that deep down we know that this is the inevitable end when people with whom we differ or even people with whom we have experienced a tremendous amount of conflict become people that we choose to no longer treat with a shared humanity. And we are not immune to it happening here. We've seen it. But if we believe, really believe, that each and every person bears the image of Christ, that I see Jesus across this room, and I will in the face of each and every person that I come to meet, and you believe the same, that that ought not to ever take root, at least not in our community. That the heart of God breaks equally when lives are lost, and communities and families are shattered no matter the tribe, no matter the tongue, no matter whether they profess any faith at all. It is for all of these, and for you, and for that person who just gets on your nerves, and the person you don't feel is deserving, and the person toward whom hatred is a constant temptation, them too, for God so loved the world that he came to dwell among us and to bear the weight of pain and bloodshed past, present, and future so that his beloved children could live without fear. The bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way and the truth, the true vine, this this is Jesus. And a couple of you have asked me about more like practical application during these teaching times, and there certainly will be weeks in which that, that'll be the case. Like, do these things, and you'll live a life of flourishing. But it feels wrong to prompt today, because the thing is, you don't have to do anything. Because it's not about you. It's about what has already been done out of an unshakable love for you. One step you might choose to make. We're going to gather at Sharon and Anna's in two weeks, November 5th, for the like, afternoon potluck, November. November. Anyway. Uh, and there is a pool. And if, if you have never been baptized, but believe Jesus when he says, I am, that you believe he's telling the truth, that it would be a profound joy to share in that celebration as, as a family. And so let's talk. But for today, may it be enough that we together declare the Lordship of Christ. And in so doing, we declare a love that is for all people. And in so doing, we de declare that in Christ there is 
freedom, freedom from fear, that you are freed to love. Would you pray with me? Lord God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the freedom in which you invite us, that we would be good stewards of it, Lord, that you would help us to live with, with a kind of a joy and a abandon and generosity that, that through us, that your spirit would be a part of, of bringing great light to this, this community, this city, and beyond. Wherever you see fit to send us, lead us and guide us in your name, in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.